0: village and I used to drive to and from the building site. and at some point people you know started waiting for my car like how they used to wait for a bus. You <laughs> know you cannot uh, say no because you know they are your community like they are your uh, and then they were the people who were giving me fruits in return and it was a very very interdependent uh, sort of network and then if they were constructing something they would ask for something so it was a very mutually uh, symbiotic sort of relationship
1: hello hello welcome to another episode of tiny farm friends podcast this conversation long in the making is personally special The pivotal theme of the podcast has been sharing stories of the mad ones, people having the courage to take unconventional paths. For many of our friends, our guest today, Aarti Dhingra, is a mad one, someone who took the road less traveled. She is a role model and a personal hero. Aarti is an architect with a deep interest in ecological design and the visual arts. Her interdisciplinary practice based out of a small village in Uttarakhand in the central Himalayas of India, explores interconnections between ecology, design, climate, culture and social identity. This conversation is about her inspiring journey of setting up her practice in a village in the Kumau region of Uttarakhand. Today, Aarti and I deep dive into what it means to build beauty. We explore gift economy, ethical architecture and how living close to nature influences creativity. And we discuss migration from villages to cities and vice versa and so much more. It is a long but powerful conversation. Listen to the podcast at a 1.5x speed for a faster experience. This conversation is for everyone who wants to live in the mountains and work closer to nature. Enjoy the conversation with the meticulous and diligent Aarti So oh Yeah, Aarti, thank you so much for agreeing to come on Tiny Farm French Podcast. I know we've been wanting to do this for the last six months. And yes. since you told me about your story... I could only say that maybe I am living that in a parallel universe, in a parallel yes. world in Uttarakhand, you lived you. a similar story in Kumau, I am I can so much relate to it now since I am living it in Gadwal, maybe 3-4 years That's down true. the line, yes. and every time I talk to you it's super enlightening, and so it's I am really glad to have you on the podcast, and I want to pick your brains on so many topics, but... Before we can do that or dig deeper into your Uttarakhand Kumau story, I would like to know your background, like you were born and now you're here. So what happened in between?
0: So, Okay in how much detail let's let's see um yeah. I was born in Delhi and uh, then I also studied uh, we lived in Gurgaon actually since a young age we moved to Gurgaon because I was uh having problems with pollution in Delhi so my parents shifted to Gurgaon at that time Gurgaon was not what it is like we used to we had one single alone house and now we, when we look at pictures it seems like so yeah. They're making like uh, these builder floors of uh, four-story uh, high apartments. Um, so I did my schooling in Gurgaon and um, then I did my architecture from S.P.A. Delhi. And um, uh, then I worked in Delhi with uh, a professor, Ashish Ganju, uh, in Ayanagar. For about two years, <laughs> and uh, one and a half, two years, I worked with him uh, officially, and then I continued to work with him even after uh, after that. I worked with Professor Ganju because he came as our fourth-year housing jury for in SPA, and yeah. um, there he uh, he talked about you know his new book which he had written just then, which was called The Discovery of Architecture, and um, he talked about how we've sort of in our modern times, we've forgotten the value of architecture is actually to serve society and and so on. And he uh, brings out in his books, like, some fundamental principles which are present in ancient architecture, ancient wisdom, ancient knowledge, and um, why have these been forgotten today, Uh, you know. And so that was my motivation when after graduating from SPS, like floundering, what to do, who to work with. Got a, a placement in some big firm in Dubai after college, but di- didn't feel like going for it. Felt like working with a small studio. Um, so worked with Ashish Kanjusa, wrote to him. He liked my portfolio CV. He said, okay, come join. He said, I don't have a very standard practice. So you need to be careful what you are expecting. So why don't you come meet me? and?" Um, then I went and met him. It worked well. And then I joined his studio. So I was working on this project, which was in Dharamshala, which is a nunnery called the Dolmaling Nunnery, which is Ganju project since 20, 30 years, basically. And uh, it's, it's like a monastery, but for nuns uh, and uh, for the Tibetan refugee nuns. And there they were building a new school for, uh, for the nuns. So I was really fascinated working on a real architecture project after graduating from college. And um, um, this project was also in many respects very fascinating because you know, it was somehow we were building on Buddhist principles. So bringing that into architecture was very fascinating for me. And there the, working with Ganjusa of course was like a very, uh, very good, like very, life-changing sort of experience almost. And um, and there the nuns were themselves building on the site. Like they were the ones who uh, managed the uh, site coordination, building construction, all of that. So for me, this was very interesting because I was like, okay, like this somehow gave a very realness to the project that it was not like, you know, uh, we are designing it in drawings and some contractors are building it. No, it, it was really very real. And uh, Ganjusa always used to say that um, you should design your building in a way that the person who's reading the drawings and on the mason who's making the drawings can understand the order that you've created in your building that you know so much that they don't need to constantly refer to your drawings and they don't need to, you know, um, uh, they, they kind of understand the rhythm with which you have designed. So these things really stuck to me and i was also working with him on another project which was in ayanagar so Ganjusa's office was in ayanagar only he had he had his office and studio there it's a beautiful building if you ever get a chance to see it uh, he's unfortunately Definitely. no more yeah he he passed away last year uh, because of covid unfortunately but um, yeah his his studio and his house is like one of the most beautiful buildings one can live in our experience or something. So half of his house was uh, the home, and half of was the studio. So we used to work there as office. And um, the other project we were working on in Ayanagar was the an urban renewal project of Ayanagar, which is which again was like a decades long project. So Ganjusa worked in this manner with all his projects that you know he used to. Um, uh, they were not like just start and finish. They were always like these, uh, almost every project in itself was a research design lab where he would constantly learn with the community, develop things and build things and, and so on. And um, then after that, I, once this Ayanagar project was at a certain stage almost um, um, ready and this uh, the Dolmaling project had become on hold because the nuns had diverted their funds for some Buddhist festival. So I was a little bit like uh, not happy because I wanted to really uh, build, mm-hmm. like really uh, yeah. really learn construction and architecture and site stuff. So I, I told sir, okay, I'm going, but as soon as the project starts, I'll come back. You, you let me know. I'm going to get some more experience in hardware in architecture so um, that and, and then I also thought okay maybe I want to get a master and I, I was a little bit um, not very sure what I want to do but I knew that now it's time to do something different so um, yeah that's when I applied uh, for other jobs and um that's when I actually then moved to Kumau. So in between, there was a, a small workshop that I had done with in in Kumau with an NGO over there, and where where they were focusing on building rural homestays. So the, yeah. uh, um these rural homestays were happening because you know, the uh, NGOs of the government gives them schemes to make homestays because there's a lot of migration happening. So this as a way to curb the migration, they are given these incentives that you will give your loan, you make your homestay and then whatever income you get back, you can sort of uh, it, supplement their livelihoods and then you can also pay back the loan. So uh, as part of this kind of workshop, we designed some rural homestays for a particular village. This was a small workshop. I did that and then came back. And then later, um, I um, when I was applying for jobs, I found a job which was asking me to go back to that same village. And it was somehow Super very... Yeah, it was somehow a very big coincidence because that's yeah. such a small village. Like nobody would have gone there before. And I actually knew the, all the NGOs. What the, the name
1: village. of the village?
0: Uh, Sitla. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, very small village. And the, the architecture company, they were not able to very easily find people who would just, you know, pack their bags from the city and go move there. But I said, yes, okay, I will do it. Because I also wanted to, and I was really keen on, you know, uh, I I knew the people, it was a beautiful village, I wanted to go there. So I took the plunge, I said, okay, I will, I will go. And uh, they were very happy because they found someone. And uh, I knew I had some local contacts already. So I think that was the the strong point that I had at that time. so and so that was from when i was born till when i got there now what's you want so, me to go further
1: so first like i want you to maybe reflect back and uh, uh, tell me i'm sure like mr ganju was a gem of a person and now do you if you look back do you really feel lucky that you worked with him and your life took another course and if yeah. we talk about architecture like pedagogy like because you will you graduated from an esteemed college in India right so what do you think were you equipped enough to maybe take up construction projects or do you think the whole education system that we have in this country is it flawed or what are your views on that
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, it's very easy to also say it is flawed. But you know, at the same time, architecture is such a difficult subject. It's a culmination of all the possible subjects one can ever imagine, right? Like recently, okay. someone was telling me that they have to design a building for animals so you need to know how animals would you know have their daily activities and all of that so I mean you you absolutely need to know everything to become an architect or you need to right. keep learning all of that everything you know of course it's not like at any point you will know it so uh with working with danju sir was a very uh definitely a very 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 life-changing experience because um, uh, coming from this esteemed college he would they sit in a moment. He would be like, and I would be like, okay, like, uh, you know, people talk about SP in a very different way. And Ganjusa talks about SP in a very different way because for him, these institutions are basically, you know, uh, where they give you very codified knowledge and where you are not allowed to break out of it. And really uh he used to always say that you know they train you in tools um in all these softwares and tools but the biggest tool someone can have is their mind and that mind is not trained then what is trained like he used to talk like that and um so definitely it was a lot of unlearning when i was working with danju sir a lot of unlearning from spa but I might disagree a little bit with Ganjusar and I've said this to him also, that it wasn't all that bad. Like everything that we, you know, of course college can't teach you everything. It can't teach you a, a real life experience. I mean, now uh, there are universities which are beginning to, you know, do a lot of hands-on build workshops and this kind of stuff. It was a little bit missing in our uh, in my my time, but, um, but yeah, it does give you a little peek into what all is there, you know, and then, Beyond that, it's also, at least at SPA, it was a lot of learning from your peers that you, there is, okay, there is a substantial learning from your teachers as well, but a huge lot of learning is from your seniors or from your uh, classmates, batchmates, and, you know, from the city, you keep experiencing different events and you, you know, you do a lot of these studies which connect you directly to the place that you are in and uh, all of that. So i yeah i mean there's definitely things that can improve but there's also a lot that it it gives already so
1: but if you look at uh, the situation like when you pass out from the college Do you think there is a fear of building as in that you feel that, okay, I'm not ready yet to, you know, construct something or take up on a project?
0: Definitely a fear in the sense that architecture is a very difficult profession, like to really practice architecture. So as far as I've understood, there are two different worlds that people branch into. Maybe they start with doing an architecture job because not everybody, not Very few people are just, you know, go out there and I'll start my own practice. So they start with a job. Now, most of the times these jobs are very disenchanting in the sense that they might not be building something which is very fair or very, you know, working in a very fair manner and people are usually very disenchanted with that. I mean, I'm talking from just experience of friends and and colleagues and so on. And of course, there is the pay aspect as well, um, which is a whole other story in itself that why uh, why does it have to be a profession which where you study probably one of the longest as as much as you you study to become a doctor you you study the same to become an architect and why is it so so less paid that's a whole whole other debate in itself and um, but definitely you know these are these are the challenges with the Something very internal which I also faced was a fear of building. That you know, I thought, yeah, I'm. You know, building construction in college used to be my hated subject. Like I never used to attend those classes. Somehow used to topo those drawings to you know just uh, do the submissions. And then uh, design studio used to be the most favorite. And um, then when you like you like when I uh, started working on my own, this was after I moved to Kumau, and I mean, somehow that bridge happened, like I realized that it's not, like building is something very natural, and you know, when living in the city, I had not been able to think like this, I had always thought that, you know, this is something which other people will do, like some contractors, I think it's also to do with gender, because you know, there are not many practicing women architects who were who are always around or uh there are okay architects but also contractors and also you know people on the site there are there are there is so much that women do on construction sites because um you but but their work is hardly sort of you know categorized in the work which gets counted or that their work is hardly um counted as labor or um you, it hardly comes to the forefront basically yeah it's, i agree uh, and, yeah. what
1: you're trying to say and i'm sure like you must have faced a lot of challenges as a, a woman architect when you moved to kamao so coming back to that part that you chose a road less traveled and you unlike maybe your peers you thought of working in the rural areas and You ended up in Kumau. So I wanted to dig deeper into that story that how, again, you ended up there and what all experiences you had and what all challenges also you faced as a a woman architect living maybe alone in that village.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I can share this with you. Um, so I when I found myself at the building site. I was posted there as an a site architect. Okay, now being a site architect, having no experience of being a site architect, right? I had because I had worked only in Langer's office, and we were working on a project which got stopped. So I had no construction stage experience at all. And there, my job was to be on site, and that site was also. In terms of like weather conditions, it was difficult because it was so harsh sun and it was uh, just very harsh weather being outdoors all day. You're not used to it coming from the city. And um, I was the only woman. So for my parents also, this was thing that, you know, from a safety point of view coming from Delhi, you you, you would always think that, you know, working at a building construction site, being the only woman, a young girl almost uh, 24 years old. what what would you sort of uh, feel? So I had come with that kind of um, a little bit fear, a little bit just seeing, okay, how, let's see how it goes, learning on the job kind of thing. And um, there, the contractor turned out to be a 65-year-old, very grumpy, very patriarchal man who, you know, uh, First took me like beta, beta, okay, uh, hum kar and all of that. But then the project dynamics were also such that, you know, I had to convey the architecture needs, right? And the client really? was um in another place. The architects were in another place, and the contractors and craftsmen were with me at site. And you know, uh anything that was coming from either the client or the architect, my face was the the you know, the Person that the contractor was seeing ki, bola, karna, or whatever, because they wouldn't know ki the communication I'm constantly having with my boss or with my client and so on. So um, beyond a point, and the project in its own way was justified that it was unfolding in a different way because it they were building in a rural area and um it wasn't a very top-down approach. They they were coming with, you know. They were expecting some site-based solutions to come so wanted to do a lot of mocking up and sampling and this kind of stuff and you know understand some things which might work in the city but might work differently here so that back and forth was expected but for the contractors it uh, it was not easy to take a 24 25 year old girl who also looks like a child to you know come and tell him even like super politely um so that was super difficult and even more difficult because i was not very confident of sahi kaise karna hai you know mm-hmm. like it's not like i am coming with some experience ki main bata dungi aapko sahi kaise karna hai mujhe seekhna bhi aap se hai and mujhe aapko bhi theek karna hai so it was a kind of a very challenging job and um, so the fun part of it was a lot of learning like i really enjoyed it and there were some uh, young people at site like carpenters who were kind of my age group and you know they were they were very uh, good to bond with and then so they it worked really well and in terms of you know um, also the craftsmen they were really old you know these Kumauni craftsmen who work with stone so they were really right. very very skilled people who you know? Sometimes I would just like to, in my idle time, just sit and watch them making their each stone, making with the uh, this pointed hammer. So, and then by default, I was getting involved with their community living and their their way of so living. meanwhile,
1: because... where were you put up uh, when you reached I was... there? Like, how did you find a place?
0: So, and... I found a place based on my own context. This turned out to right. be uh, kind of a, a blessing in disguise because the clients were supposed to help me find some lodging and support my rent and all but it turned out they didn't help me and Mm -hmm. but as a result what happened was that okay I found my own lodging and then when I found my own lodging I found my own community and then I found my own way of you know being with the community so half of my life was the work site but half of my life was the village life and uh, that became a very important learning at you know, what we are doing on the building side because the village community is such a small community. Everybody in a day or two, they knew that okay, this is the madam who came to on the site and you know, And I would earlier, later I brought my car also there, but earlier I would take the bus to go or uh, take a lift from like hitchhike with people and all. So it was a very short um, period in which everybody knew, okay, something is being constructed. This person is an architect, even though many people didn't know uh, exactly what an architect is or like how different it is from a site supervisor or engineer or something, they didn't really know that, but I was then solely part of the village. Then some of the masons were having grandchildren, so they invited me to these festivals of, uh, you know, uh, these uh, um, uh, dance festivals of when they celebrate the grandchildren's birth and all. So that then, and then also the weather is constantly changing. So you see uh, how the seasons are changing. Every season has their own local festivals. So they, they, they're they also behaving differently. In the winter, the work timings are very short. In the summer, the work timings are long. Uh, at some point, they used to tell me that, you know, um, when we were casting the concrete slab, um, we were, trying to plan when to cast it. And they, they told me because that's when the days start to get longer. Yeah. So that's when the frost will not uh, uh, come on the RCC slab. So all this very local knowledge, traditional knowledge that they have since generations was kind of playing a lot of uh, relation with construction. And the, I could kind of relate their whole ecosystem with, with what we are constructing. Yeah.
1: So wouldn't we right, to say that you experienced all the seasons, maybe, f- I mean, noticed and keenly observed them for the first time, like how the moon cycles are, how the yes. sun mm-hmm. movement is, and and how Absolutely. much did nature influence your creativity there?
0: Absolutely, a lot. I think, uh, I think that coming, then it connects back to your first question of that fear of building, right? The moment you Find yourself completely in nature in a way that you know you're totally immersed in it, and you know you it's a very tactile feeling you're working with your hands all the time you're working with your body your your mind works in a very different way, and at that time, somehow architecture is a very natural thing it's not like it's as natural as a bird would make her nest or it's as natural as you know ants would make their ant hill or like, you know, just taking up some mud and making a chula to put protein, in it, light, light a fire. That that obviousness became architecture for me. And this kind of changed what SPA had taught me architecture because their architecture was like a profession, which was like for professionals, which was for, you know, to be done in a certain way. Another thing, like, you know, we work so much with drawings, but when I was working with uh, craftsmen outside, they don't work with drawings. They can't even read drawings. They don't know what is a section. Like it took me so. It was so difficult for me to ex- tell them. Imagine there is something. You have sliced it. Now you are seeing it from here. Now this is a section. But um, for them, it would be so easy to you know just take a stick, draw it with on the mitti, and be like, "Yahan pe ye hai. They would their imagination only is different. So we would work yeah. a lot with mock-ups and models, and that would be so fast and so good and. And i started making a lot of physical models also rather than drawing. i think because
1: of the section you also encountered a problem which you tried solving it later regarding the water tanks <laughs> or something right
0: yes true 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 yeah so even though like architects would work with their best intention like the people most of the architects i was working with they were coming with the best intentions of you know making something sustainable something good but just the, the entire worldview there is so different that even the best intentions are sometimes not understood or you know that uh, misunderstood because people think also working with natural materials is inherently sustainable. Now mm-hmm. we were there working with stone and wood, which are which are natural materials. So in terms of carbon emissions, they are much better to use than uh, say RCC or steel and circularity and they would go back to the earth and so on. So that's that's one uh, tick already for the materials, but i slowly learned that you know the wood that we are using is coming from pine forests and these pine forests have a whole ecological social ecological connection in the in that society that these pine forests are basically they are not native they were planted by the british or they they're basically they were they are not indigenous to the area and they are actually invasive so what in, what that means is that uh, wherever these pine species are growing they don't let uh, the the native oak, rhododendron, kaffel, these kind of species to grow. And uh, these other species, which are broad-leaved species, they are basically, you know, they uh, enhance the soil water qualities, enhance the soil nutrients, they allow, uh, they, they provide their leaves for fodder. So they are very much more uh, part of the ecosystem in a more Key, keystone species kind of way that you know they they the, the cattle feed on them the humans use them for fuel they cannot use pine for fuel because it has the lisa and yeah. um they they nourish the soil they uh, they they, they uh, support a community growth of forests like they allow other species to grow but pine doesn't allow other species to grow and uh, so if you see a pine forest it's very barren you'll see only pine needles in the in the floor of the forest and if you see an oak forest or a rhododendron forest like how you see in like some reserved forests of Mukteshwar or um these areas, you'll see it's lush green and it has a lot of undergrowth also, it has different height growths. also, it has a different soil quality, you feel a different smell of the, the nutrients of the soil, and you feel also um, a different temperature in that uh, area because of the microclimate that creates versus the microclimate this creates. Mm-hmm. So. And um, this pine forests, why it came as an alarming realization to me was because in the summertime, uh, these famous forest fires of Uttarakhand, which everybody is aware of, they were everywhere. Like they came to towards houses. People were spending nights to you know for, fight forest fires, and um, it's it's become a common thing in their life. That is the cause of come. the
1: pine needles, right? That they catch. Exactly. Uh, fire actually, between.
0: yeah. It's actually a very complex phenomena because the the way the species, the pine species propagates itself is through creating these forest fires, like the pine cone is designed in such a way, naturally, that, you know, it opens up when a a fire comes and it spreads its seeds and it has a rolling nature, so it rolls uh, rolls down the hill and spreads its seeds. And pine are you know something called pioneering species. So they grow the fastest. And the other species grow slower. So it kind of shoots up really uh, fast and doesn't allow other species to grow. So the fire actually burns all the other species because the other species are quick to catch fire. Pine's bark is fire resistant. So it causes the fire, burns the other species, doesn't itself let, let itself burn, protects itself, propagates itself so it's almost like you know uh, you can imagine like human characters in these trees also like pine <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> exactly this is that how... was
1: coming into my mind like some kind of yeah. uh, evil villain
0: of yes exactly has
1: its own uses.
0: Yeah. exactly so not just that that it propagates itself through these forest fires uh in terms of like its natural uh, um uh, uh, uh propagation but also it attracts lightning the fastest so if there is a thunderstorm if you there's a pine tree on your site, it's likely to catch lightning catch fire fall whatever its roots are kacha, so they, it can fall easily with wind um uh what else so, yeah it doesn't provide uh any fuel to the uh, sorry any fuel to the uh uh the local um chulhas and uh, it doesn't provide any fodder to the cows but all it provides is us uh, timber and resin which is a huge contributor which is a huge revenue generator for the construction industry and uh, that is like a big chunk of the revenue that uttarakhand generates so um, this became a big part of their ecosystem and this kind of connection, and I mean, people are so used to this, that forest fires happen and this is happening, but you know, it's still, it's very connected to the fact that every year when these forest fires happen, there, there are habitats being destroyed of uh, local animals, and you know, um, so you see a lot of wild boars coming into farms, Uh, creating chaos, not letting them farm anymore. You see sometimes leopard attacks. You see um, there are, you know, a crazy amount of monkeys uh, that that are there which do not let people farm anymore. And these sound like right now, just things we're talking about, but they're the actual problems of people that, you know, a person is really the monkeys have caused a lot of havoc like they've stopped farming because of the monkey havoc and they need to keep dogs which chase away the monkeys and So this, this brings
1: me to the next question that I am assuming that you were there building a house for somebody uh, who's trying to maybe move from city to the rural area or maybe just making a farmhouse and at the same time you're talking about the animals and how Maybe their habitats are being destroyed and maybe they're venturing into the farmlands and maybe that's causing uh, some kind of problems to yeah. the villagers and maybe leading them to you know, reduce their efforts in farming. So yeah. I want to know about migration. So both ways.
0: So again, it's like a very vicious cycle, but probably inevitable. I'll... Uh what I understand is that so like we spoke about the pine forests right that they are invasive they don't let native species grow because of that farming cannot happen and because like soil quality degrades farming cannot happen so like farming used to be one of the main livelihoods of the people over there and of course happening in a globalizing world and urbanizing world it's also kind of happening in parallel where people's Aspirations are very much towards the cities and um, towards what the city, the, the life that the city offers. And um, um, so what happens is that when farming cannot happen, people look for livelihood and they they migrate out. So you will find these satellite cities nearby like Haldwani, Bhawali, all these places which are closer to these villages, that mostly the, the younger men of these uh, homes have sort of uh, gone out there for work or this kind of stuff. And the people who are usually left behind are the women and the elders. So that's actually, uh, it's um, more difficult than it sounds because uh, when you leave behind agricultural farmlands, they actually don't work when they are, you know, fragmented. So if, because uh, these uh, traditional homes used to be community living, so their farms were also connected. They used to be like row right. houses. And now when a patch of people have migrated out, those certain patches have become non-cultivable. Like the beechka patches are, you know, it's more difficult for them to cultivate on it because their quality and so on. So the system is not
1: resilient enough right now. In exactly.
0: A way exactly and um, and then so first of all the system became fragmented because half of the people went out now that difficult system is, is left to be managed only by women because you know the, the men younger men have all gone away and um, um, also the elder's responsibility is now uh, uh, to take care of the elders is now on the women and then um, in terms of like certain social traditions and all, it's usually the women who go and fetch water. So the the natural sources of water are you know found scattered in the topography. They're, they're like uh, natural water harvesting systems called nolas, which where people go and collect water for the day. And it's it's usually a, a good enough walk for like and I mean it's usually the women, mostly the Bihari women who who go there for um, fetching water. So and. Now, because of this again construction activities and the degrading of the soil, the nolas are also drying up, so you don't always find water in the nearby nolas, so the walk that the woman has to do is also kind of doubled up, tripled up, so it's become like a manifold problem for. A particular gender as you can see like she's not only not getting the benefits of you know migrating out which the men can easily get that you know they can find jobs and opportunities but she's also suffering the uh, that is climate disasters that are so happening having there.
1: having seen myself like how much hard work a pahadi woman does but can you yeah. also trace what you observed like how her day looks like an average pahadi woman uh, living in the village.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, yeah, they would. She would wake super early in the morning, take ten to the cows, go fetch water, cook, work in the farm, uh, go fetch water again, and uh, they they also go fetch fuel wood, go fetch grass, and. Uh, it's a lot of physical labor work. Sometimes they also work as labor on construction sites, but they still get paid less than men uh, just because of uh, gender. And uh, then they, they also take care of the kids. They also take care of the elders. And um, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, disparity in, in how men and women are behaving there. Like The men are actually suffering from lack of work because they get addicted to alcohol and all of this easily because they have nothing to do. They have, uh, you know, they're just sitting there playing games, drinking alcohol. And there's a big addiction of pro- alcohol problem that Uttarakhand is facing uh, uh, in, in men specifically. And uh, the women are f- suffering because of excess work and the men are suffering because of lack of work. So you can see how the, the ecosystem flux is sort of impacting the two genders differently. And um, where I was living was actually a local hospital also over there. So one of the doctors there was a very close friend of mine. And he used to tell me that all the women that are coming um, with, back pain and you know uh this pain is because of how hard they are working they're like they're so old but they're still doing so much labor uh, labor so they ha- had like cervical problems and this kind of problems which they've taken very easily like lightly they don't take it seriously and um they also have a lot of uh breathing problems because they constantly work on these uh chulhas, Okay. Uh, have a lot of smoke so yeah definitely the Pahari women have a very like a, a strong role to play in the economy in the local economy but it's not given credit for in the agricultural economy as well and um, yeah they're, they're they're yeah unequally doing most of the hard work
1: yeah I'm sure I've seen it myself and I yeah I'm really astonished the amount of work they are able to pull off in a day. I am it's like they yeah. literally like wonder women. So we a traced uh, some of the reasons that maybe men have shifted in search of work to maybe these yes. uh, towns or maybe more developed parts of Uttarakhand. Families also shift to cities because lack of schools, lack of hospitals, lack of infrastructure, and maybe they're not into farming anymore. So this is, this we traced the path of migration from rural to city. Now I would also want to understand from you like why city people are coming back to rural areas.
0: Yeah, so, um, so yeah, we stopped the cycle. We stopped talking about the cycle where you know the rural people are moving out and land is now fragmented. As a result, you see many, many ghost villages. So, you'll see some entire villages, you know, like there's one village where I was living called Diari. It was a village of, it it is a village of crafts people who build with, you know, uh, thun wood, they make woodcraft. And now, unfortunately, even the last surviving craftsman who was really old, or around 90 years old, has also passed away. So there's no way to, they can pass on the craft to someone or um, so on. And... um, So when you see these ghost villages, now the economic impact this has is that land prices are really low. So uh, the land prices are so affordable that a a middle-class urban person can easily afford sort of uh, buying land over there and having their dream holiday home, mountain home, this kind of stuff. And also because it is a touristy place, like it offers you good views and there is a, a strong tourist, Uh, aspect in it so um, and it's also not like mainstream tourism it's not like Nainital or it's it's somewhere where you know you can be secluded but still enjoy like a good hiking and uh, you know small homestays kind of experience so people um, I mean uh, so the kind of urban people who I've met who uh, live in the area are of mainly three different kinds so uh, one of them are the people who have come As NGOs there, so they really are, you know, they're not, they're not expats, but they're like immigrants who've, who've come there as to sort of uh, uh, work for the rural people and they've set up hospitals there, they've set up schools there, they've set up uh, livelihoods units there, they're training People in education—they're training people in uh, making jams and products and uh, soaps and selling their products and giving a lot of much-needed healthcare, which you know in r- rural areas they can't access. So they're taking their uh, um, mobile medical units in um, remote places and providing healthcare. So that's like something that's really, really needed also. And um, uh, the other kind of people i've seen there are also returning uh, uh, people returning at, at an age of retirement or you know who were who had once migrated out but they're coming back with you know hopes of doing something in their own area um, set, setting up there with the knowledge that they've gained in the city and you know trying to make a livelihood back again so that's the second kind and the third kind are you know uh, people who have just bought land are building holiday homes but not live going to live there. And will probably uh, hire some local people to be their security guard and um, come there during vacation time. So um, yeah, like it's usually the third kind of people who don't live there that create certain structures, which in themselves are kind of ghost structures now. They are like, so on one hand, there are these abandoned ghost villages, which the villagers have left out. But on the other hand, there are these huge, uh, you know, uh, monstrous, ugly RCC structures, which are half done. Just left abandoned because someone couldn't afford to complete the construction, or something happened, or some land dispute happened. They haven't finished it, but um, yeah, these holiday homes are just lying there. But you know, they, it has fragmented again the community lands because they build huge boundary walls and this kind of stuff, and put CCTV cameras, and so, it's so it's what a are pretty, the... yeah
1: what are the tangible and intangible effects that brings to the existing ecosystem uh, if we talk about right. the third kind so,
0: um yeah like uh, so it does have i mean i think all these kinds there is constantly an exchange like the rural is constantly exchanging with the urban the urban is constantly exchanging with the rural and they're constantly you know uh, um um uh, sharing values economy there's so much of exchange that's happening so for example um one thing that i saw was the bringing in of airbnb the concept of airbnb is coming in because um so some of the ngo people of course because they they come from the cities they had put up their local homes on airbnbs so now in airbnbs they they would charge a higher rent than you know a local pahari family would charge for example so they also saw that uh, this is how much rent we can also get from a uh, room. So why should we give it for you know if we can get uh, uh, give a room for two thousand per night, why do we need to give a room for two thousand per month? So it it was a exponential sort of um, economic change in the ecosystem, which I also faced because when I was living in the village for three years, uh, right? And when I moved in, i could find a nice uh, welcoming home with the local pahadi family who would you know also give me food and also appreciate the fact that someone is staying with them long term because it's nice to have for them a guest and um, but the moment the airbnb system started uh, when i had to look when I had to find a place, nobody would, uh, they were like, yeah, it's okay, but you know, will you move out if we get Airbnb guests, will you? And nobody was willing to give me a room on a monthly basis, but they were like, you know, uh, uh, like it was such a short-term rental system. And this is what Airbnb has done in many cities as well and to the rental economy. So that's something, I can
1: understand their situation also because living in this, I am sure there have been, there has been always a fight for resources. And if such an opportunity yes, comes, yes. I'm sure they would love to grab it. But I've been also thinking on about this a lot, about gentrification and maybe how, you know, maybe as urban people coming into rural areas, definitely they bring some economic value, some other kind of values also. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of exchange happening. Maybe there could be better share models that we haven't thought of right now, yes. yeah, which are absolutely. more sustainable for... Both yeah. somebody is coming yeah. in and somebody who's already existing there.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And um, in terms of this exchange, like, uh, it's also so one thing was uh, the economic factors that have come in, and this has kind of drastically changed. Um, the, the ecosystem of the place. And again, it does come back to that divide between the men and women because, you know, the, the change in the economy is, okay, it is bringing new opportunities for a lot of people in the area, but sometimes the women are not even in a position to benefit from those opportunities because they are so caught up in their you know, um, that very space of place and space of flows. we, we In urban planning, we call these um, uh, space of places where you're sort of very rooted, and where you you need to be in that place for your daily living. And you know you're working in space of flows as people who are like us who can have Zoom calls and who can have you know yeah. uh, uh, networks and this kind of thing. So um, yeah, they do not have the access to the space of flows at that moment, that time, and um, it's something that, like you rightly said, that if one is conscious about, uh, you know, what exchange we're bringing in. We can do it in a good way. And, you know, we can not just simply gentrify it, but rather have a but have a nice like, exchange. Like
1: Just to add on to it, I believe that maybe because we have also made this transition to rural life somewhat. So what I notice, and we've been interviewing such people who are either doing it or wanting to do that. So I believe that we were earlier talking about the circular nature of village life, you know, how cow dung uh, is very circular and how sustainably they use wood and all that system. But now they are also, rural people are also somehow getting detached to their own, you know, indigenous wisdom. And they are maybe adopting Western methods which have failed in the Western society as it is. But when people, the conscious people that you mentioned were, who come from city without any background of a village life or without having engaged with yep. nature, they are coming with the spirit yep. uh, and the curiosity and the inquisitiveness to the rural areas, yes. which actually rekindles the uh, the circular nature in the rural people, you know, when they Absolutely. ask them about farming and, how they used to source food and ask them to you know teach them their techniques so in a way maybe they're rekindling all the values that are now yeah. uh, getting lost
0: yes definitely yeah that's that, that's true i agree to that and um yeah, like um, in terms of also learning from this whole cow dung loop that you've said, I think you know not taking it literally, but just understanding the circularity in it—the fact that it is a closed loop system—that you know it something was created, some it was used, it a different it was processed, and then it went back into the earth, and then it was created again. Just understanding these systems and understanding what systems we are having now, uh, and the, the fact that they are not closed loop and where are they kind of growing towards, or what are they becoming? That itself is like, you, know, and then trying to close them because um, um, uh, it's just, it's like, a, it's like a long, long process because now what we have is a system which is not as simple as one rural unit. It is multiple, you know, and there's hardly any differences between indigenous knowledge and the West, uh, what we call it, because it is constantly, again, exchanging that we don't know what is indigenous anymore. We don't know what is the West anymore. At some level we do, okay, because uh, there are some practices which are done in uh, uh, villages, but yeah, it's it's a very complex
1: uh so basically the lines so, are getting blurred qu- quite quickly right
0: yes exactly and it's a it's it's become a systems thinking problem which you know needs needs a lot of uh, closing the loop kind of answers and like mm-hmm. you rightly said that you know it's uh, conscious people who are coming there who've who've seen what fails in the cities and you know who can sort of bridge those gaps because they can, they they can make the two worlds meet in a sustainable manner. That's, that is like super, super, super needed, crucial.
1: Right. So now coming back to your project, where did that fit in Mm and like, how did you advance on that uh,
0: that project i was just an employee working as a site architect but slowly i realized that you know i want to work with the rural community also because um, uh, most of the times when i was working with the uh, people who were moving in you know from a very diff- from a very luxury oriented background from the city they were expecting those luxuries in the villages also and um, it's a, it just didn't feel natural uh, living in the village that those luxuries are even possible because in nature, you you can't afford those luxuries. Like to give you an example, I was living in a small, small hut. I'll share with you pictures later. Maybe you can put it in also because it will give a good idea. Um, so I was living in a small hut which was completely dependent on rainwater. And um, like here now working in Germany, people uh, are like we don't even use rainwater for uh, recycling it in a way to you know consume it or drink it or bathe with it but there we were using rainwater for everything because we had no choice so um either rainwater or we would have this local nola like i told you to we used to go fetch water in there and uh, we had to really be really really uh, uh use it really scarcely and um but in some of the building sites we were building swimming pools so for me this was a big contrast uh, um that you know uh, i mean it's just that like uh, sitting somewhere else you're sometimes not aware maybe you have the best intention to make a swimming pool as well but you know maybe you're just not aware of the harsh realities of the place and um What happens is that, you know, in hilly areas, especially water is a very scarce commodity and it also is a very shared commodity because, you know, um, if your land is, if your house is on top of the hill, water will flow down. So if you extract a lot of water at the top of the hill or you use it, then the villages downhill will not get that water. And, um, you know, then we're talking about equity and resource sharing and all of that and, um, um, yeah, so these these issues were very real issues that you know people were kind of facing on a day to day life. Like some rural people came to uh, some of my construction sites and they would say, say, "No, you cannot construct anymore because we don't have any water to drink and and so on." So you know, like how we talk about ethical fashion now, it it came to me that you know what are the what is the ethical side of architecture? Like uh, what we are doing something that's legal, but Is this ethical? And, um, you know, so I started questioning on that level that, you know, what is, what is relevant architecture? What is ethical architecture? Sustainability is, was a, you know, a ground line, but it was when sustainability becomes such a broad and sometimes misused word that, you know, we, we can almost call anything in any way, so many ways we can call things sustainable, right? But, um, when you really root it to these particular ecological factors then you really know that you know if you're being regenerative you know if you're helping the ecology or if you're destroying the ecology that's very clear so um that was the the kind of uh line that was something that you know then i begin exploring those those thresholds that you know uh what is that kind of architecture, which is, you know, beyond sustainable, it's, it's, it goes to sort of support livelihoods, it goes to so, sort of right. support the economy, this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, yeah.
1: So now you came from city. So do you think that you were bringing any value to the whole rural system? How was the response of the community in accept, accepting you? Uh, as somebody who's come it from our a
0: lot of it was a lot like i think there was because there was so much construction happening there in the area um first of all i made very close friends so some of my closest friends in life are now my village friends and um like who i'm constantly in touch with and um, like, who i met them there i was living with them and it was a it was a very like almost like community living that you know we were living together eating together everything so um and some of these friends were also working in local ngos so uh i have a friend who is a forester and from him i learned this whole you know story of the pine and the oak that i'm sharing with you and um some friends were doctors some friends are you know really working with their hands building stuff and um uh, some friends are artists so uh like having this very close-knit community um, was a very enriching experience. And um, I think the second factor was that you know there is so much construction happening there that people would just be like, ye kuch bhi chota sa, you know, if they're uh, ki to you know, everything from chota sa se leke bada kuch bhi, just ask how to do it. So i did feel that you know i am in a position coming from the city that i can impart some value at the same time i also learned a lot some many things directly and many things very internally also like you know when i was uh, always questioning this um, the fact that using natural materials is that always sustainable uh, And then we also worked on some projects with Avi and cob, and, you know, very natural materials. So that was also a very fascinating experience to also bamboo. So, you know, learning with materials that are like more in harmony with nature and, you know, which are causing lesser destruction and very local uh, impact that, you know, it'll just, you build something and it'll just go back to the earth when the life of it is over. So um, I was also questioning, you know, the, the, values that we are taught as architects of you know having everything completely maintenance free and very permanent something that should last 100 years 50 years very concrete ideas that we have concrete materials concrete ideas and you know breaking the breaking down these sort of very uh, concrete definitions but trying to understand things which are more
1: so did did there yeah. come a point where uh, while introspecting that you question the relevance of being an architect for maybe building dwellings?
0: Yes, yes, yes. I think uh, I, from an architect, I just became a facilitator instead of mm. being, you know, the, the protagonist uh, designer, how we are portrayed and, you know, like uh, the architectural community, it became more of, you know, just facilitator who is kind of Coming with some knowledge which can guide people, help people, facilitate things, but they already know a lot. They already have so much wisdom. They know many things. In many cases, it was also to draw the lines because with a lot of urban clients, this happened that, you know, uh, uh, so it, for me, the spectrum of rural and urban was completely different. So when I was working with rural people, I learned a lot from their way of building because it was unfolding in a very beautiful holistic processes and that the process of unfolding was creating something very beautiful and wholesome, but with urban people, there was so much influence of you know Pinterest and you know like these kind of things that uh, are very on a very superficial intellectual level but not a very deeper emotional need of the space that will tell you yeah, we want something which is visually like this which because they are coming from a very urban background they have the words to talk about these um faces and they have the design language so to say but they kind of miss out on the essence of what the space should Mm -hmm. do and in the end what turns out
1: yes yeah so like no, what are the say, yeah. Like you rightly were mentioning and comparing two approaches, so I just wanted to come to that point. Like, How different did you see uh, the approach? Like one, as a, as a conventional architect that he or she takes in the city versus how the rural uh, craftsmen or rural builders or mystery, maybe they do it yes. while building their own houses or somebody else. Yes. And I remember uh, you mentioning yes. in the talk how they could, you know, maybe just by touching the soil they could, you know, like tell you that whether it's good enough to yes. build it to everybody. Yes. So what is yes, the relationship between like the materials like and different approaches?
0: Yes, I met one very uh, very wonderful person, Nishikhan Bhai, he's a craftsman who works with mud, and he could really tell me, like, he used to touch the mud, and he used to tell whether this will go one floor or two floors, whether this mud, but that's, now that you think of it, it's so obvious, right, because, you know, uh, when you feel a material, you know its quality, like, you know that if this has silt or clay, you can feel it, if it's, how it's crushing in your hands, how it's making a ribbon in your hands, these tests, we also have these field tests, so, Like sometimes, you know, in the city or in architecture training or just general urban living, we kind of really disassociate from a very intuitive side of what is inherently present in us as something that we can feel and tell. We've kind of totally abandoned that and we've become like, you know, we we won't believe it. Like we just won't acknowledge it we won't believe it won't follow that uh, voice but we will just uh, wait for this material to go to a lab to get tested and some uh, through a mechanism which will then tell us the result Uh, so not to you know uh, I don't mean to say that that lab test doesn't have a value, but you know that we would be in a so much better position to understand the value of those things also, if we were more in touch with our intuitive sides and, you know, understanding materials in a very intuitive, holistic way that, you know, these are gifts of the earth that are touching us and, you know, understanding it as as that rather than, you know, something external from us or, you know, um, I find it very difficult to talk about these processes, but,
1: Because what I I understand from the approaches is generally I mean I might be wrong and different people take different approach we cannot definitely generalize but maybe in conventional architecture you plan the building and you like you're done with the elevations and all the planning and then you come to the point of selecting materials and material palette but I think when it comes to rural areas the material guides a lot of the construction and it is yes. more intuitive in nature more instinctive in yes. nature and people in the rural areas are much more confident about their instincts
0: absolutely absolutely and you know i find it similar to like let's say if if you're uh, very mindfully cooking a nice meal, first you'll see what vegetables you have, what ingredients you have. And then, okay, this is what I have and this is what I can make with it without following a recipe. And you know, this uh, something, you just follow a process, which is a very wholesome process. Okay, maybe now the next thing that should come, that feels right. That's the next best step to do. That should be done. And then if you if you stay true to the process, something beautiful and wholesome will come out of it that's the yeah. the ancient way of building right that's that's how most indigenous societies and most uh, rural societies work in but in the urban way of building or cooking uh, it's basically that you know uh, you saw a recipe on pinterest now you want to make it so now if i need one ingredient which comes from finland I have to bring it from Finland, you know. So, but where is the self involved in it? There is, the Mm. self is totally disassociated from it. So this idea of the self is, I think, what is missing between, um, you know, uh, building something which is very beautiful and wholesome and, you know, very in, in harmony with the ecology rather than, you know, just building something which is intellectually can be termed sustainable. Nobody is questioning that. You can call it, you know, you can say that even in the countries like Germany, where I'm working now, I've noticed like the definition of sustainability is something, you know, okay, this is how much damage we could have done to the earth, but we did this much. So this difference that we've done, that we've saved, you know, that is our sustainability, basically. So I feel that, you know, that sense of self is missing in this. And, um, Interestingly, like this, when I was feeling this also, even Ganjula writes about this sense of self with the community a lot in his works in the discovery of architecture. And I recently did a, a postgraduate uh, diploma in, a, a, it's called Building Beauty, basically. It's based on works of Christopher Alexander and um, taught by family and colleagues of Christopher Alexander also. And he also talks about a process in which, you know, when you when you stay true to the process of unfolding, you kind of create something which has a lot of your, yourself involved in it rather than uh, It's very difficult to talk about these things but maybe you can check out the program and uh, uh, it's, it, it basically talks about beauty and wholeness and architecture from a, from a holistic point of view rather than a you know, aesthetic point of view because it's, it's kind of integrating aesthetic and function and calling it wholeness. Basically, okay. and uh, because we, as designers, we tend to divide the two. We say key, you know, function form follows function, function comes first. But if you look in nature, if you really understand nature deeply, like a tree or a leaf, you know, there's it also has a function, but it also has a form, but it also has beauty, also has wholeness. So when we probably say form follows function, the function we forget the fact that you know, the space needs to make us feel very emotionally comfortable and you know emotionally wholesome that is also the function of the space it's not just that you know you will sit and do your all your anthropometric uh uh, things which are satisfied with you know you you need to also feel feeling is also a function so we kind of forget that feeling altogether and um so so um yeah i believe
1: believe that you've been exploring this theme throughout your career, maybe, I think your thesis topic was also on similar lines and now after pursuing your master's in Germany and you took this uh, uh, course in post-graduation specialization and I would like to dig deeper into uh, this course because Christopher Alexander uh, is definitely someone who every architecture student, designer or Anybody who's planning to construct anything should read. Uh, I yeah. strongly believe that. So maybe yeah. let's uh, dig deeper on building beauty, his work, and what mm-hmm. beauty means to you.
0: Yeah. So um, so I, like I told you already, when I was in Kumar and uh, trying to explore these, uh, a different kind of architecture, which is sort of, let's say, more in harmony with the ecosystem, and you know, um, the life cycles of the materials and uh, the deeper needs of the clients, rather than you know something that they just saw off Pinterest or these kind of things. Which is trying to really understand the like how to design in a way that really, really uh, deeply understands people, rather than you know just superficially understanding you know aesthetics and these sort of very visual. Um, languages that designers talk about. Um, so, I mean, in my practice, I was exploring this constantly and like the role of the architect had changed to the, to the role of the facilitator. And um, um then I wanted to sort of uh, get a little bit into teaching. So I, I had actually begun teaching a little bit, like I, I had gone as some guest lecturers in some design universities and architecture schools and all. So um, I felt that, okay, maybe it makes sense to, you know, um, learn a bit more, go a bit deeper into this theoretically also, understand how these ecosystems are working. I wanted to do like a like a master level study on this particular area, go understand how these ecosystems function and, um, and what is the right way to build in such areas? You know, answer that question basically. So that was constantly a question. And um, so, so I mean, luckily I had a scholarship to come to Germany uh, I, where I studied uh, my master's which was in integrated urbanism and sustainable design. So that was a pretty uh, rich experience in itself uh, where we went deep into ecology and ecosystem design and thinking and um, urban planning, all of that. Um, And, um, uh, but at the end of the course, something was missing. Like, you know, uh, there was, um, I also did my master thesis in Kumau where I uh, compared these, you know, social ecological systems of the the rural areas versus what they are becoming because after the migration and all the economic change that's happening. So, um, and the whole gender thing that I'm talking about, all of that came out as uh, as a result of interviews with people and really spending time with them and talking to them and um, the stories about the women that I'm talking about. These came out uh, through interviews and um, um, yeah, and a lot of ethnography and you know, just, just spending time in the area. So there was still something really fundamentally missing that you know, okay, now I know how the how all of this makes sense, but you know where, how do you proceed like what, how can an architect design, you know what is a way to design in which that it resonates is in harmony with these areas, so I was kind of. Um, maybe again it was a, a, a big coincidence that ganju sir used to be faculty at building Beauty. so um, and. Like Ganjusa has been my guru mentor throughout. Uh, ever since I worked worked with him, so he was also guiding me with my master thesis. And um, yeah, like I said, that Delta COVID wave, which was horrible for all of us. Um, uh, yeah, like uh, uh, Ganju sir, then he passed away unfortunately during that um, that COVID wave. Uh, it it was in the middle of my my thesis and. Um, Yeah, there were a lot of unfinished discussions. Like I was, you know, speaking with him about all of this and my thesis was coming to an end. And yeah, suddenly he was no more. And uh, you know, but he had always talked about the building beauty program to me. And I was actually working in his office when they were designing the building beauty program and he was part of it. So um, for me constantly, it was a thing that, you know he's engaged with and I want to know more about it. And I want to at some point get into it as well, but after he passed away, this kind of came as a natural sort of choice that, you know, there were there are so many unfinished discussions that are remaining to have with uh, Professor Ganju that I want to have and I want to, you know, I want to go deeper in it. So I kind of, uh, that's how I got into Building Beauty because um, almost as a tribute to Ganju, sir. And, um, and I'm really happy that I did because... Uh, it kind of connected all these worlds that that are uh, that i was exploring and um, and you're talking about wholeness which is again connect the self and what you create so uh, one famous line which christopher alexander is, which is also written on the building beauty website is that making heals the maker And uh, so when you're making in a way that is truly in harmony with the fundamental principles of nature, it has a very healing effect on you and yourself and your conscience and you know, the other way around that um, when you feel so uh, mindful and aligned with what you're creating. And you're able to see the difference between something that is truly wholesome and beautiful. And remember when I say the word beauty, I'm talking about the beauty that we talk about in terms of leaves and trees and not like the convoluted term of beauty that is uh, misused versus you know distinguishing it between these very these styles of architecture that you know we are minimalistic or we are modernistic or we are sure like these styles have their own place and
1: yeah i you think know, that conversation has gone viral in recent times too like the conversation <laughs> yes, between the minimalism and
0: yes the true.
1: loss so of detail the
0: idea is, the essence of what i'm trying to say is that there are certain things which are, you know, preferences, which are personal preferences of how you want to dress or how you want to uh, whatever. But you know, there are certain things which are more deeper, like on a neurology level that your your body needs something. Now, if you, you know, eat a fruit, you will get certain nutrients or certain minerals from that fruit, right? There's no questioning that you won't get it. Uh, Similarly, like uh, when you are in a certain space, our bodies respond neurologically. There is like enough scientific evidence there is there are biometric tools which help us understand that you know our eyes our mind our, our skin our bodies perceive certain spaces as more comfortable more you know emotionally comforting for our, our neurological systems rather than others and uh, why i'm constantly focusing on neurology is because when architects say form follow function, this is something the sensory experience of it is something that is totally lost. Like we totally disregard that. We just end up creating, you know, very minimalistic structures. Which okay, I I, uh, there is a certain uh preference, the intellectual preference that it is coming from. But you know, on if you really connect to a deeper level of what the the human body needs, at some many levels it falls short. Um. This also, like, the, the kind of people who teach building beauty are people who work directly with Alexander and, you know, who were their contemporaries or students or, um, um, I don't know, partners. Um, they, and, I mean, it's very fascinating to see the life journey through his works that, you know, he was also constantly exploring what is a meaningful way to build. so. He, you know, even Professor Ganju, he was also constantly exploring what is the meaning of architecture. Like he also used to do these uh, talks, architecture and society, constantly questioning what is the relevance of an architect, what is the meaning of architecture, critically, very radically questioning the role the architect plays in the society, and you know, what is the, the ecological, what is the social relevance of uh, the responsibility of an architect, and he used to always say that you know, architects are very much needed in society, but not in the way that we're working now, in a, in a very different way. So probably, you know, more as facilitators or more as like the Ayanagar work that he was doing, that no architect would do that work. He used to always say that architects hate to talk about sh- because he was dealing with sewage. No architect wants to talk about waste management and sewage and this kind of stuff. So yeah, like it, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to really understand like coming back to your earlier question of you know, questioning the relevance of an architect, I believe in the standard way that we are taught, definitely we should question it. But we also know at some level that now that we uh, we are trained to you know um, integrate so many different subjects of knowledge, that is basically our strength, right? And that strength, a lot of people can benefit from. And um, so in that way, we can sort of value to, to many ecosystems and, and in many ways. And um, yeah, so for me, building beauty was kind of uh, uh, um, like not something that is groundbreaking or eye-opening because at some level, I was also within myself and the work exploring, questioning those, but it kind of gave me a thing that, you know, to see works of Alexander who says, you know, found methods and learn his methods because he's gone through that journey and he's developed certain methods of unfolding and understanding beauty and he's given us some objective tools basically so there's something very fascinating which he's devised um, called the mirror of the self-test so this Mm -hmm. is something which is you know uh, these days, people talk about human-centered design, and everything basically that human-centered design is is comes down to the mirror of the self-test, which is you know uh, catering to something very deep within your your human self, and it, it's very uh, related to how well you know yourself and how well you're willing to be mindful of yourself, because it's it's a test which shows you two things, and let's say two spoons or two uh, cups or you know two buildings. And then it asks you a question, which is super introspective to say, which one of these represents all the good, bad, ugly, beautiful sides of your your true self, you know, which one of it has that. And um, of course, to answer such a deep question, you need to be in touch with your own self, right? If if you answer it superficially, you won't answer the correct answer. And um, somehow like objectively, when people answer this, most of the people choose one particular answer. Like it's a, it's a, it's not a subjective thing that which is your true self. It's an objective thing. So that's where it comes down to neurology that, you know, if for a second, we forget the ideas of beauty that are taught to us by society. Like, you know, um, I did for my bachelor thesis also, I was designing some spaces for children for specifically juvenile delinquents that foster sort of rehabilitation and emotional healing and these kind of spaces. So I did an experiment with children from younger classes, like fourth, fifth standard, even younger, second, third class and uh, higher like secondary school, like uh, 10th, 11th, 12th class students. And I asked all of them to draw a school, what school means to you. And um, of course, like as you would imagine as well, all the elder students drew like a very uh, modernist building. I gave all of them colors, okay. And the elder ones didn't even use colors. They did pencil shading, gray and white and black, with a very uh, school bus there, and you know, very uh, all the regimented parts of the school were there. And when the younger ones were drawing, it was full of color, full of vibrance, full of emotion, and full of you know, much more meaning that you know, I'm more, more like right. their friends were there. Rather than the systems and the mechanisms, their friends were there, their parents were there, their teachers were there. So what I'm trying to come down to is that as we grow older, like what was the conclusion of this study, this primary study was that as we grow older, there is a certain influence. Of course, there is a certain influence that what what we are taught is correct. And what we are taught is beautiful. What we are taught is, you know, even in architecture, we are constantly looking at references on the internet or works of architects who are from a generation of, you know, a certain style of thinking be post the world war and all of these have impacts on how we feel and how we think and how we are brought up. But uh, if you really go to a child and ask these things, there are no, none of these impacts. They, they don't know about the impacts of the world war. They they will just tell you the, the truth, like the truth which is actually in harmony with nature. That you know, the, the, this is the space which, which nourishes me. And um, somehow in the mirror of the self-test that comes out through all of us. Like if we really, we don't ask Arthi or but we ask that inner child, what space is you know? Th- then the answer is always objective. So that is something that Building Beauty gets into, and really, again, talking at that intuitive level, it sort of strengthens your, uh, brings you more in close with your intuitive sort of um, way of feeling and you know working and making, which is a very, very rare thing in today's world. Like very mm-hmm. few people do it, and. So many people are disassociated. So I was really, really grateful to have done that uh, that whole one year course. and um yeah, it I think like I also wrote an article about it, and I wrote something that uh, you know, bringing someone in touch with their intuitive mind is the biggest gift that you know someone can give to another person. so and I mean, this is not mm-hmm. a new thing. everybody, Albert Einstein also said this that it's. Uh, there's a famous quote, uh, quote by Albert Einstein which goes something like, "The rational mind is a faithful servant, and the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And we've learned to sort of honor the servant, but we've forgotten the sacred gift. So this is not something new, but it's just something that you know keeps coming through. I, I see it through Vanjusa's work. I saw it in the in in what I was exploring in Kumau as well through my own journey." And then I see it in Alexander's work and, you know, it's, it's something that, and I see it in your work when you were talking also, so that it's pretty fascinating to keep coming back to that. So there is some truth in it.
1: Yeah. I mean, what you have said right now, like there's so much wisdom to absorb and, uh, so many relevant questions, uh, That you like asked, and I'm humbled that you could mention my name with Ganju sir along with Alexander. I mean, there. I wish I had a mentor like Ganju sir, but uh, definitely now Christopher Alexander is like a hidden mentor. Like I've been reading his pattern language, Mm -hmm. and uh, I would definitely would want to read like more of his later works, the Nature of Order that you had mentioned me earlier, and. so who would you like to recommend this course to like i'm sure listeners are quite Uh, intrigued about this course
0: yeah i feel uh, so nature of order is the, the the magnum opus that we are referring to in the course as well and but the last book or the last book that i know is called a battle for the life and beauty on earth and um in this book, Alexander actually describes the struggles that he went, like, so he he calls it two world systems almost. Even Ganjusa used to call it an ecological worldview. This way of thinking, this way of being, the way he was working, he used to call it an ecological worldview that even in his book, The Discovery of Architecture, he's presented it as an ecological worldview. That, you know, uh, this is an alternate system of living. only. It's an alternate system of thinking. And even in Alexander's work, um, he describes the struggle to make uh, make beauty and wholeness and life buildings that support life. Basically, these kind of buildings that are, that foster your neurological comfort, your 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 happiness. He calls these buildings that support life. And um, he describes the struggles that he went through in our modern day world systems to be able to, you know carry on these processes like you also told me the other day that you know when if you take on other projects how do you make sure that you are there physically to sort of uh, carry out and like like we were talking right now so we need to somehow make these two worlds meet unfortunately because that's that's where the starting point would be we can't completely um you know, imagine a parallel world and then be very happy about it, but not do anything about it. So, yeah, I would I would recommend it to anybody who's interested in, you know, even the, the courses for architects, graphic designers, artists, software developers, anybody who's remotely interested in understanding wholeness as a way of life, basically, and, you know, not looking at fragmented view of things but looking at whether you're a writer whoever it's it's not limited to only architects or anything like that and um, people who want to engage with making things um, and you know understanding that fundamental question of how do you make something in the right way and uh, the the universities and the schools there are so many schools of thought, which are, you know, conflicting each other and uh, you, you align or you become your own identity, which comes out of ego again with most architects. And um, so you're, if at some point you're questioning that and, you know, you're trying to find a, your language or, you know, that a language which kind of resonates with nature or language which resonates with with fundamental principles. So the other thing is that when we say we are building with nature, we only think of building with natural materials, right? But this kind of building, when we talk about wholeness, it's not restricted to materials. It's also about the process that, you know, the way you, you're you kind of aligned with the a process, which is rooted in fundamental principles of nature. So yeah, I would just say, just check out works of Alexander. That would be a good start.
1: Yeah, definitely. and. Like I've been also going through unlearning process in the last few years and questioning a lot of things that I've been taught and questioning a lot of processes as well. But coming back to you, you were mentioning mentioning different worlds, right? And you are someone who's been flowing on and off and very fluently and seamlessly into both city and rural life. So how are you currently? You know, like balancing your work. Uh, in Kumau and simultaneously you know working in germany and how do you yeah, see yourself in the future so what's the vision
0: good question i do see myself working back in in Kumau, or back in india definitely uh in the very near future um germany is like a, a stint because of I got a scholarship, I wanted to come study here, also explore the other side of the world. And, you know, when I was in Kumau, at some point, I felt that I, I need more learning. I felt that, okay, I, I want to only intervene when, when, when I'm sure of what I'm doing. So, I, at that point, I felt, okay, it's good to get a master's. Um, so, so I came, but, you know, now, um, I, I do see myself uh, walking back there. I am, in fact, you know, the... The advantage of working in in uh, rural areas or working in the kind of projects that I'm doing is that they are they are so slow because we're working a lot with uh, natural materials like stone and which are very labor intensive and uh, uh, craftsmen are making it. So sometimes it takes years for a building to come up and um, and then the pandemic happened. So in between that, this um, that's when I did my masters. Um, but yeah, I definitely am still very connected like I'm constantly talking to my team there and my contractors there and you know constantly doing video calls and that's why I mean I I think I'm able to it's not a very easy thing but I'm able to manage because Europe offers like this work-life balance which everyone's talking about except that you know when I need to balance the work and life I'm managing like Germany work and Kumau work so I don't have any rest which is not a very sustainable thing me but um, at the moment i'm that's how i'm managing it um and yeah so yeah that's
1: that's how so, it's going great so we talked about beauty we even talked about natural materials and we talked about migration but one thing i would want to know from you because you also worked on uh, various projects for the rural community right there like uh, not for people, somebody who's coming from a city and building a mansion, but, so, in cities, generally, the transactions are quite commercial, right? So, how did it yeah. work for you in Kumau?
0: It's so interesting that you asked me this, because we should really talk about this. So, yeah, so when I left my job, which was paying me, I wanted to work really for the rural people, and then it became a big question that, okay, how do I sustain myself? But, uh, Fortunately, I didn't have many demands and the cost of living there was not very high. And um, all I needed was shelter and food, right? That's that's what you need, basically. You need shelter and food. So I worked with one rural family who were designing their homestay, who said, okay, you know, you need to help us in designing our homestay. Now, I felt very shy in asking them for fees because, you know, they're making this homestay for their supplementary income. And... Uh, If Even if I ask fees, what kind of fees should I ask? It will not be enough for me to also pay rent. What should I do? So I said, okay, you know what? Um, You can just make me tiffin every day. So like, because, you know, I I was working so much, I had no, no time to cook. So I said, every day you make me food and I will come uh, to see the site every day. So this was an age that happened, and it, it was so delicious because, you know, Kumani Pahari meals are so, uh, like was like the yummiest food you could ever ask for. And plus you would get also a surplus of fruits and, you know, seasonal uh, um, surplus all the time. So that was a very kind of, um, uh, Sort of a gift culture that i was working on and with another clients i was working in exchange accommodation so i they were they wanted to build something on this side they said ek kamra khali hai, tum le na. and you know tum thoda help and thi, ek ghar pe mujhe khana Toh, you know i was just uh, sort of surviving like that i mean uh, like by saying this i don't mean to glorify unpaid work of architects, like by no means I want to glorify that, but what I explored through this was it like we were talking about different world systems that, you know, if you think in a parallel world system where how the economy works, that, you know, um, if I was a resident of that village and I didn't have other aspirations, this is something that was working in a very mutually benefiting way. That They would give me much more than I needed and surplus of food and accommodation. I was well taken care of and I could also work in return for this. But again, like I said, the whole differences between that, that battle for beauty that the, it, it, that compares the two world systems, then you you need to survive in an urban world system at the end of the day. So then it had a limited lifespan working like this, but it allowed me to, to explore like a a whole different model of economy you know like a, almost it was like a it was like a gift economy basically gift culture so and then uh, talking with my forester friends uh, we used to relate this with how um, the trees worked on, work on gift culture like they exchange nutrients in their roots and all of that so it was a very fascinating experience to to see that okay this kind of economy is rooted in nature like this is not very different from nature. You, it's a healthy exchange of, I can offer you this service, you can offer me that service. So it was a very healthy exchange, and yeah, it was a very, very different model of architecture practice, social design, I would call it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, sounds very interesting, and I'm sure, like you were maybe fortunate to experience this kind of gift economy setup because our systems were moved definitely a lot far from. Uh, these kind of sacred gift economies that used to persist yes. yeah. in earlier times. I think you also need
0: to take that step, you know, at some level, like I know so many people who might be in the same position, but not have, to, because I have so many friends who told me that, you know, if we were in this position, you would not have taken that step uh, that uh, to, you know, still work on gift economy or still do. But I I think it's just that one step, if you really take it and that's, that's also which you deeply feel again with that self and intuition and all of that there's something that that living in nature for a long time does to you that you do start believing in 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 that voice and you you know you you think okay this is the right way to go it makes you feel safe that you know you will and be taken like, care
1: of like like nature like even nature you know there is a lot of interdependence for exchange of nutrients exactly. exchange of resources Absolutely. and similarly yeah. in especially in remote areas it becomes more uh, Like a survival thing, you know, like you have to help each other. Maybe if there is a wedding, you need to help, you know, get the chairs for the wedding, or you need to help cook. Yeah. Because absolutely, you
0: you have no uh, help someday. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's how the system
1: developed.
0: Yes, yes. Like I used to have my car there in the village. And I used to drive to and from the building site, And at some point, people, you know, started waiting for my car, like how they used to wait for a bus. That this little car you know lift. You cannot uh, say no because, you know, they are your community. Like they are your, uh, and then they were the people who were giving me fruits in return. And it was a very, very interdependent uh, sort of, network and then if they were constructing something they would ask for something so it was a very mutually uh, symbiotic sort of relationship i think symbiotic
1: I is the right word that you used you yeah know. yeah so yeah. i'm i'm sure like like in between all of this you must be posting on instagram or on social media and that yes. must have painted a really rosy picture for your friends yeah. but Uh, What what are their reactions and what were your realities and challenges that you're facing in your personal life? Oh,
0: my God. It was so different. It was so different because, um, you know, sometimes my friends would be like, oh, I'm so jealous of your life. I envy your life. Like, you know, so whatever, this kind of stuff. But actually, reality is, you know, very challenging. Like, if they would come to visit me, they would not be able to survive for more than three, four days. They would be like, it's so difficult, you know. um, They would really be able to survive. And they would be like, okay, we are going back. It's nice to come for a holiday. Coming for a holiday is very different from really living in such a place. And, uh, you know, simple things like where I used to live, was like a 15 minute uphill walk from the road. So where you park your car, you need to constantly uh, yeah, walk. And um, and then that area also has leopards. And it also like people do um, say, uh, like put your, they put their dogs inside and it, like uh, there have been incidents of, you know, dogs that we know that have been taken away by the leopard and all of that. So it's not like, uh, I mean, it has its own beauty and its own charm, but it does have its own, uh, um, like when I was working at the site, it was so hard because there were no, there were no toilets. Like where, where would I go? Uh, you know, simple things, which you don't even question in the city. And, uh, mostly I was working with men, so I would be the only one who would need a toilet. So things like that were difficult. Then eventually I had to take my car because, uh, a lot of uh, like uh, traveling was really long and uh, um, challenging and um, and then there were of course these like pest attacks and like at one point my whole body was filled with you know these uh I don't know some pest or something from dogs or something like my whole, whole skin was like had this uh infestation or whatever which i had to come to the city and get it treated because uh this was there and then of course there are like these leeches if you walk in the walk in the forest right. there are these leeches so, and spiders and i mean urban people are not used to this and they, they would just scream and i mean i was actually one of those urban people actually you know it was so funny when i came from uh from the city when i just moved in there was this uh night jar do you know this this uh bird this night jar which makes this noise like like a beep, beep beep this kind of noise it makes okay and okay and then I was sitting with this uh, bunch of people uh, who uh, like my friends over there and like around a bonfire or something and I was like I don't know, Mary landlady, can machine on chod ki kya kuch And you know, you can't just think that that beep beep could be a bird. Like, it, it's, you can't always think it's a machine. And so, I mean, our minds function in very different ways than we are, you know, with nature and without. And, um, but a lot of people also ask me, don't you feel unsafe? I like, don't you feel unsafe with, um, living in a forest and because I was living on a in a hut which where you know one kilometer around it was nothing um, so with like a big dog Mowgli uh, and then they were asking what well, don't you feel unsafe and then it made me realize that you know somehow walking even at night with that big Mowgli who is like a leopard magnet for uh, that area I mean it was somehow so Feeling unsafe from a leopard was so liberating, you know. Than compared to feeling unsafe in Delhi from like a man, you know that 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 there was a fear for sure. But that fear was a very liberating fear, like it, that I'm afraid of nature, you know. But I'm not afraid of uh, someone who can cheat me or someone who can you know uh, uh, stalk me or whatever this kind of stuff. Yeah. So that that even that fear was very raw. And that
1: fear was super liberating. I think. Yeah, I can only try to understand that. But now I'm sure <laughs> your journey was quite challenging, one but a beautiful one, and a lot of memories to ch- uh, cherish. So, before we end, I would like you to maybe you know share some advice for people or students, designers who are maybe you know planning to make a move to uh, rural areas uh, from urban areas and what should they keep in mind or maybe how can, you know, maybe they become part of the community or what kind of value they could bring to the community?
0: Yeah, I would just say, that, you know, don't go with any pre, uh, predefined notions of how it should be. Just go with the flow and just see, you know, you, they will find their own community because if you, if you go with certain expectations, it's very difficult. But just, just go and see what's out there for you and just um, just go with the, the intention to explore yourself like this, I would definitely say that, you know, get to know the rural community, get to know nature, but also get to know yourself through that journey. And I think then the journey will take over. I think that's uh, that's how it
1: should be. Great, Thank mm-hmm. you, arti and thank you for sharing all the wonderful stories and little anecdotes and there has Thank been a lot like of them. wisdom to absorb from this episode and it all, it's always wonderful talking to you and because especially I Thank relate you. a lot of Thank things and I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope the listeners do as well. For listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving a comment. Your comments and feedback are highly appreciated.